With an eye to the future, Sandstone Health and Rehabilitation is embarking down two different parallel paths for bolstering its workforce. First is a focus on internal growth and the creation of succession plans for Sandstone employees. That planning led Jennifer Robinson to the role she is in today as company president. The second is a focus on getting young people introduced to the skilled nursing sector as soon as possible, such as opening up summer internships for teenagers. It's fundamental, according to Robinson, to get the state's youth comfortable in a skilled nursing setting, and opening the facility doors for that type of exposure is a good start. Not unlike many other states across the country, North Carolina is expected to see a 116% increase in its population of individuals 85 and older. What can be done today can shape the workforce for the next 10 to 20 years, Robinson said. Before we get to that interview, I wanted to mention that there's still time to get tickets for our in-person Rethink Conference happening on September 1st in Chicago. Hosted by Skilled Nursing News, Rethink is the premier skilled nursing event dedicated to trends, challenges, and the future of the industry. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com slash events for the latest updates on the conference and our other scheduled events. Jennifer, it's been just about a year since you became president of Sandstone Health and Rehabilitation. What are two of the biggest successes and two challenges you faced thus far? Hmm. A year. Wow. Uh, Time flies when you're in a pandemic, I guess. It seems like just (laughs) yesterday, really. Honestly, the overall business responsibilities have been a relatively easy transition As a company, we've always supported a culture of internal growth. With that being said, the the leaders are always looking ahead for next steps uh, for individuals. We're evaluating and kind of facilitating their growth plan. And this also includes a succession plan for when that individual grows. And our owner, he practiced this and over the years, kind of unbeknownst to me, He's been grooming me for for that day when I took over as as the president of his company, our company. So with that being said, I'm I'm truly grateful for his leadership. And ultimately, it's continued to have a positive impact on our company. I've experienced some successes and, and definitely some challenges in the past year. I was listening to your podcast uh with Good Samaritan CEO Nate Shima the other day. And we share some similarities as we both have kind of transitioned into our new role, especially in regards to delegation. (laughs) I guess early on as an administrator, I had to be the one with all the answers, the one involved in all the decisions. And over the years, as I've grown kind of professionally, more so probably over the past year, it's been imperative that I, I trust my team and, and make those, you know, trust them to make those right decisions. And I think that's something that Nate spoke to as well. So just continuing uh, our mission, it doesn't necessarily mean I have to be the one that's doing it every day, but as the, as the leader and the representative for Sandstone, I have to trust that they can continue to deliver our mission of being servant leaders. That success for me personally has also kind of been one of my biggest challenges because I've always been an operator that's very hands-on. I love being in the facilities 
spending that intimate time with the residents and the floor staff, family members, it was nothing to find me maybe serving some meal trays or making beds, shaving a resident. Those were the types of of tasks, of things that truly I felt grounded me and and brought me back to the reason I chose serving others kind of in a healthcare setting. As I've grown into the bigger responsibilities of my new role, I find that I'm just not able to to do this as often as I would like. So kind of coping with that challenge of having a view from a higher altitude It's somewhat resulted in a success for myself and for Sandstone over the past year. Along with our executive leadership, it's giving us, it's given me more opportunity to to be involved at the state level associations. I've become more involved with ACTA, but it's also allows me less time to be in the buildings. And so I truly, I feel our company has been more successful through my our ability to kind of understand our industry from a broader view beyond just North Carolina or beyond just Sandstone. However, at the same time, I have to continue to make sure that my team is, is continuing to deliver uh, the mission in the buildings with those families and with the residents and with the force. Yeah, no, that's definitely an interesting trade-off there. I'm curious, you know, you talked about succession plans and kind of growing from within through Sandstone. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I know that's an interesting thing that a lot of people and operators are trying to do. And I know that there are some data that proves that that's quite successful and can prove to be very helpful for operator success. But I was just hoping you could talk a little bit more about that and what that looks like, both through your own growth as well as your uh, employees as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think um, when you grow internally, it comes with its advantages. And and honestly, it comes with some disadvantages, too. I think uh, the disadvantage is that it's more work. It's more work for the leadership team to to invest time and that effort into the growth of um, of their employees. But at the same time, I think the advantage to that is that you're able to continue um, this culture. And I'll speak a lot to culture because I think ideally that's what sets Sandstone apart from many of of the um, other companies in our industry and and not just our industry, but just as an employer in general, we, we develop this culture. And as we grow these individuals, that's what continues to contribute to do that overall culture. So many of our administrators, and I'm not sure if you know that, Jordan, but many of our administrators started out as CNA or medical directors in our facility, medical records directors. They started out in some other form of leadership, maybe at a department level uh, leadership. And a leader and someone who it's very obvious they have that kind of compassionate, empathetic personality about them. Sometimes they're easy to spot. And so when you are able to recognize that in someone, it's very important to me and to the other team members here at Sandstone that that we grow upon that 
person's opportunities and, and give them a chance to really contribute to not only to Sandstone, but just to the elders and our industry in general. Yeah, it makes a lot of yeah. sense. And so I'm just kind of curious, what drew you to the healthcare sector in the first place? Oh, wow. For me, I truly believe that I have this innate desire to to serve others. I kind of have this sense of purpose in, in my actions. And so when I was in high school, our class volunteered at, at a local state-owned facility. Um, it was for the developmentally disabled. It was right down the road from our high school. And in this short period of time that I was doing this volunteer work, I became invested in the residents and just in kind of what I was doing and and how I felt when I would go home in the afternoons from doing that volunteer work. I felt like I was able to make a difference in the lives of some of these individuals who you know, as developmentally disabled or just in general, some of our our population, they were less fortunate. And um, I think it's so important that as an industry, we work towards introducing our youth to to the skilled nursing uh, as soon as possible. That's that's basically, um, that is how I got into the industry is that I was just introduced to the healthcare as just part of a class for a volunteer group. And many people don't know that this field is their calling unless they maybe are exposed to it or, or just experience that feeling. And I think if we continue to sit back and hope that people will want to join skilled nursing or join our healthcare industry because of our marketing efforts or, you know, wages we're offering, I think we're really missing an opportunity to attract those types of individuals we all truly want as teammates within our organizations. Those people who are compassionate and empathetic caregivers, those are the people that are going to deliver the compassionate and empathetic care that everybody's wanting our elder population to be cared for in a manner that promotes feeling of safety and a feeling of the highest quality of life. That's, that is what, where it all starts for me as a company, we're making strives to start building those interactions and relationships as early as elementary ages. Uh, It's fundamental, I believe, to help our youth feel comfortable in a skilled nursing setting. It's it's not an environment that everyone can just walk into and feel comfortable. So I believe it's very important that we start opening our doors to, to more exposure for our youth. Um, we're opening up to summer internships for teens. By 2040 in North Carolina, we're projected to have a 116% increase in our population of 85 and older. So I truly believe that what we do today to encourage the youth into our industry as a workforce, it's shaping that workforce for the next 10 to 20 years from now. And that's that's how I feel what someone did for me by introducing me 
into healthcare at, at such a young age. And many years later, I'm still here. And it's because someone opened that door and allowed me to experience what it feels like to be a servant leader and give back. Absolutely. And I know that we're going to talk a little bit more about workforce, but I was hoping you could discuss uh, and share some more about Sandstone and what makes it a unique nursing home provider, maybe something that most people wouldn't know about you guys. I think it's just exactly what I spoke to a little bit um, a few minutes ago about our culture. You know, I think you could probably get that answer pretty quickly from some of our staff who've joined us after maybe working for other organizations. Um, I've been, like we said, primarily raised by Sandstone. So to me, it's just what I know. But Sandstone operates from from the ground up, from the facilities up. And so I don't want anyone to feel as though I'm criticizing companies that maybe operate from a, a corporate office or, or from the C-suite level, because I'm not. Those, there's successes happen through many types of leadership and operational styles, but For Sandstone, we've always strived to ensure that our administrators have autonomy to operate their buildings. And I know you hear a lot of people say that, but I truly believe we do that. We have support teams available for them, but we're not, as a company, we don't use the term corporate uh, I recently, we've had some new, some new people join our team. And so it's always an education, re-education when you have new people join your team that have maybe been in the industry um, for a long time because it is such a different culture. So I'm trying to explain to them um, why we don't use the term corporate. To me, it comes across as uh, very much a, a authoritative word. And so we've grown over the years and and we've always kind of considered the we call it the home office it, it's it's more of a support and that's our goal is that those people continue to be support to the buildings and not people of authority who come in and um, maybe tell them what to do. As we've grown over the years, we've found some opportunities to find a balance between the two. I think it's very easy to say that each individual facility doesn't really have any oversight. But when you get, you know, we're 17 locations at, at one time, we were 18. And there's just situations where blanket policies may need to be in place. But this pandemic has been a great example of that. We found our administrators, they, they kind of wanted that clear cut direction when it was specific to the pandemic. They wanted to be able to go to a book on the shelf and flip to page 43 to see what to do. And we strive to be extremely careful about that um, because we feel like it takes away our buildings and our leaders within the buildings ability to be creative and to think outside of the box, maybe do what's best for the resident specific situation even if it's not written in some policy manual. And ultimately, I think that that form of leadership and that style of operation ultimately results in 
way better personalized, person-centered care within the facilities when you allow those administrators that autonomy to make decisions um, and to think outside of the box and be creative. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You mentioned earlier that culture that goes back to our growing and growth internally. We're a huge proponent of that. And I think, again, it creates extra work for the leadership to groom those employees, but it also helps that, uh, that autonomy and that company culture for years. Absolutely. Absolutely. So switching gears a little bit here, um, you know, the topic of a national minimum staffing standard has been in the conversation for a little while now. And I know some states have taken some actions individually to do that. Do you think that a national staffing standard is coming for the industry? And how do you think that might impact operations at Sandstone most? I would love to sit here, Jordan, probably and and say no, but yes, I think it's coming. Um, I I guess I I just wish that we could have had a little more of a collaborative partnership in this discussion. And, And I think there are attempts being made. My ultimate uh, opinion is that, you know, I think we're trying to get quality through quantity and quantity doesn't necessarily equal quality. I think we all want quality. There's no question about that. That's everyone's ultimate, ultimate goal. But mandating a specific quantity of staff is not going to result in quality care. I think some of those efforts and resources into education, um, those those funds for um, education for more quality staff, attracting quality people to our workforce through community involvement, through what I just talked about, volunteer program. The second half of that is where are these people going to come from In North Carolina, we lost approximately 13,500 workers since the start of the pandemic. That's 14% of our workforce. Where are those, where are we going to get these people from? North Carolina, we average a staffing ratio of somewhere around 3.58. So if we're mandated to maintain a 4.1 staffing ratio, we would need to attract enough staff to cover six and a half additional shifts per day, every 100 residents. That's over 800,000 additional nursing shifts a year. I guess, how does CMS see this happening when we're struggling to get the current 3.58 PPD average here in North Carolina? Again, I just, a more collaborative approach would have I think we would have a better chance of getting the outcomes that we all want, which is quality care. Um, I, I honestly, Jordan, I cannot begin to think about how this mandate is going to impact the healthcare sector as a whole. If skilled nursing facilities do not have the staff to meet these mandated PPDs, we're not going to be able to accept the admissions. And if a person these days is getting a SNF referral, 
it's because their acuity is, is beyond what can be cared for with home health. So hospitals are going to become backlogged. Their length of stays are going to increase. We're, it's going to result in mounting increases to Medicare and Medicaid expenses because skilled nursing is not going to have the mandated staffing levels to be able to accept these new patients and maintain the census ratios that we need to, to be able to, to help the entire um, healthcare sector. So I just foresee a huge domino effect if, if this happens, if this mandated staffing goes into, goes into place. Yeah, I think it's something that uh, hospitals are kind of already starting to see at this point or are continuing to contend with is the ability to send the referrals over and have them get accepted by the SNFs and, and kind of keep that equilibrium going. I know that the staffing shortages even currently have created some um, backlogs for that already. Absolutely. We as a company, we're having to manage our census based on our staffing just as anyone else is. So we're already seeing that impact in our local hospital systems here. We recently went to Raleigh and, and met with some legislators and just tried to urge um, with them to help them understand uh, what impact this could have uh, on uh, the entire healthcare sector due to that that domino effect that I, that I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on the topic of of hospitals here, I'm just kind of curious: how has Sandstone worked to become a quality referral partner for hospitals, and how do you think the relationship between SNFs and acute care settings has evolved over COVID? Yeah, we have always um, tried to be good partners with our hospital systems just through maintaining that ability to provide a higher acuity of care, uh, whether it it be uh, complex wound care, dialysis patients, um, IV medicines. We've always tried to push the envelope and make sure our staff was trained to, to care for that higher acuity to help the hospital systems. And throughout the pandemic, and especially during the early stages of the pandemic, it was very important to us at Sandstone that we were a resource to the hospitals. We wanted to be part of the solution to the hospital capacity issues. Many skilled nursing facilities in our areas, they, um, they, did, they stopped taking admissions uh, during the early stages of the pandemic, just I'm not sure for what reasons, whether it was fear of uh, getting COVID in their buildings or or staffing concerns, but we made the decision not to do so. We, we continued to take admissions and some of the hospitals became heavily dependent on us to find beds for their residents, whether they're COVID positive or not, throughout the state in our locations. So we experienced some of the pain from that decision. We did see COVID in our buildings, but ultimately, I think everyone did. So as I look back now, two and a half years later, Uh, I think it was a good business decision. I think ultimately it was the right thing to do to help the healthcare spectrum uh, during the pandemic. And and ultimately, I think it it truly strengthened our relationships with our hospital systems as as partners. 
perhaps we've chatted about this a little bit already, but I'm just kind of curious what you think is the biggest challenge facing nursing homes that keeps you up at night as a leader in the space? Uh, I think hands down, um, labor (laughs) is definitely, um, hands down labor is, is I think what keeps everyone up at night. But, uh, I think it it goes back to, again, starting with helping everyone understand that healthcare and and skilled nursing specifically, it is a, it's a great career path. It's a great place to work. Um, But when you are, when the, when prospective employees or individuals when they're out and they hear the media and all they hear is, is negative media. Um, I, I think it goes, our frontline caregivers, they're tired. They're becoming burnt out. They need some reprieve, but the pipeline of new people wanting to enter skilled nursing is just barely trickling in. Uh, as I mentioned before, this crisis it needs to be everyone's problem, not just the owners and the operators of skilled nursing, but how can we attract quality staff when everywhere you turn, something negative is being said about skilled nursing facilities? So I think it's it's just as much the responsibility of, of our administration, of uh, the media, to to help solve this problem. This is not a problem that just the owners and operators of skilled nursing can solve alone. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side of that coin, what's one new development in the sector that excites you? Oh yeah, I think what we've seen um, definitely here in North Carolina, but I would say that I also saw this on the Hill when we went there was, Improved awareness amongst our our governmental constituents and legislators about our our sector, about nursing homes in general and what we do. In North Carolina, we've been so fortunate to have a collaborative relationship throughout the entire pandemic. And I, I truly believe that's been instrumental in getting the skilled nursing industry in North Carolina, the resources we've needed to survive over the past two and a half years as our state of emergency here in North Carolina is coming to an end. I'm excited to see this collaboration continue as we all continue with our associations, with our members within the association, the providers, government officials, as we continue to work together to kind of determine what's the new normal, what support does our industry need to be financially viable, to attract workforce, and to continue to to serve our elder population. So I think that out of everything from this pandemic, it has definitely brought a bigger awareness of, of nursing homes, skilled nursing, what we do, uh, resources we need to our government officials at state levels as well as as national levels. 
Yeah, I know that the North Carolina governor recently signed into law a budget that extends the Medicaid rate increases in place to, I believe, December. I'm just kind of curious. It sounds like you guys have a pretty collaborative relationship, but what are your thoughts on this temporary solution and what do you think are some of the longer term solutions that need to be considered? So this past Monday, Governor Cooper signed the budget bill. And um, so we are set to have continued uh, support through the, the end of this year. And there, I truly believe that they're working uh, in Raleigh for us to, to find a solution for a long-term plan for our Medicaid residents and for us. They understand, I believe, our current cost per day for a Medicaid resident in North Carolina is somewhere around $313. With all of our, and we as a state have been extremely fortunate with our Medicaid funding. I I do have colleagues or friends in other states that uh, have not been as fortunate as we have as far as the state funded um, relief for COVID. But even with all of our dollars, we're still operating on a $29 per day loss for our, our Medicaid residents. So with that being said, I think our government officials, they know that a long-term plan has to take place. But I think we're just trying to determine what's, what's the normal, what is the new normal post-COVID um, or the cost of care. So there has to be increases. There has to be permanent Medicaid increases for us as a state. But fortunately, as I go back to that collaborative relationship, I'm extremely confident that they hear what we, we're saying and they, they want to help us. So I, I'm looking forward to that more long-term plan the good thing for us is that we have a short-term plan in place. They heard us, they answered us, and they're going to continue to fund us this year for this the COVID add-ons. But I think they also understand that 84% of nursing home providers in North Carolina are limiting new admissions due to staffing shortages. And this all goes back to reimbursement and being able to find staff and workforce challenges. So I think we're getting those numbers out there to them. It's just um, it's just finding that agreed upon resolution. Yeah, that makes sense. I know that relationships with states has become increasingly important as the federal government has waned much of its support and relief. And so it's a uh, it's interesting to see how different states are are operating through that and working with their with their providers on various levels. Yeah. And so kind of segueing back into staffing a little bit, I was hoping you could elaborate some more on some of the short and long-term solutions that you guys have implemented to stem some of the workforce challenges that the industry faces. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as a company, Sandstone, we made the decision early on um, that we were not, I I referred to quantity versus quality earlier, and and that's extremely important to us. And we made the decision that we were not going to utilize agency staffing in our buildings, just 
for many reasons, uh, but cost definitely is not the most important reason. The most important reason to us is that culture that I talk about. And we just felt if we have agency staffing in our buildings, then we deteriorate that that culture that we've worked so hard to develop. So we chose to try to manage uh, our labor challenges through supplementing with um, some of our leadership. Uh, there were days that there were weeks actually that I myself worked on a, a COVID unit as a as a CNA. But those are the challenges, and that is the intimate kind of relationship that our company has amongst our our team and our family. We call it, we refer to it family quite often. But a lot of our leadership has um, has adopted the all hands on deck approach, and so we've supplemented with that. We've supplemented, again, with some personal care assistance across the the facilities. And we know that that's coming to an end. And based upon CMS's decision to end that back in June, so now we have till October to get all of these staff lice are certified, which is, again, a huge challenge to our workforce. But we, we have supplemented with some personal care assistance we took the opportunity to grow, again, some of our staff, whether it be taking our uh, certified nursing assistants and putting them through training to become medication aides, or whether some of our uh, certified nursing assistants went to school to become LPNs, LPNs went to school to become RNs. So uh, we've promoted that professional growth. We also we took a lot of the money, I guess you would say, that people would spend on agency staffing. And we we took that money to make sure that our staff knew that they were appreciated. We invested in some marketing strategies across the state with a, a kind of a uniform platform of getting the word out that Sandstone's a great place to work we promote within, you can grow personally and professionally. And so I think all of those strategies have helped us. And to this day, we we still do not have agency in our buildings. And I, I think that's helped us maintain that uh, that overall quality and of care and culture that, that we strive to provide. Definitely. Yeah, I know that agency is a hot topic and it's always interesting when I hear providers that are going without, because I know that it can be difficult to do so. And certainly, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses in terms of using it versus not. So it's always yeah. fascinating yeah, to hear the from that. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, I, we can't, just our entire industry, we can't continue to work like this. Our staff, they, they can't continue to have to work under these conditions forever. Again, I, they're, they're tired, they're burned out. So and that is the, the disadvantage of not supplementing with that agency support. But ultimately, I think our, our residents are continuing to get a, get a good quality of care with having that um, stable staff, consistent staff. Definitely. And so thinking about PDPM here, kind of what you were talking about, the new normal, I know that PDPM is going to be in effect for three years come October, but I'm just kind of curious as you guys think about going forward from COVID, how has Sandstone contended 
with PDPM overall and what are some of the biggest challenges and opportunities with this payment model? Yeah, well, before we had COVID, we had PDPM, right? So we all spent that year just prepping and soaking up as much knowledge as possible to understand that upcoming payment model. And then and then COVID hit us. But uh, I think it was Tim Fields with Ignite uh, recently said on one of your podcasts, that he believes PDPM is a step in the right direction. And I I fully agree. I think PDPM is a step in the right direction towards a more appropriate payment model. Unfortunately, I think using the past two and a half years as a benchmark is just not accurate data. Those rates reflect the extreme level of care, including isolation and COVID-related respiratory complications that we were caring for. And as we see those complications related to the virus kind of lessen, we're seeing these rates decline already. And to base our parity adjustment on data in the height of a pandemic, um, I, I just, I truly believe it's not comparing apples to apples, but PDPM, it's, it's a complex payment model. It takes many aspects of the care into consideration. And you've basically got six buckets of care, which ultimately re- the reimbursement derives from those six buckets. And what we've seen as a company, and I think as, a, as, a, as an industry, is that our nursing component of those buckets is truly where those increases have come from. But but that's to be expected in the middle of a, of a pandemic. So we're now kind of as nursing homes being reimbursed based upon acuity and complexity and comorbidity. And in the past two and a half years, we've seen the highest acuity and complexity ever. So it, it only makes sense that our uh, reimbursement has been a lot higher over the past couple of years. But as a company, we've always made it kind of our business to understand the payment models, ensure that we're getting reimbursed for that high acuity care and those extensive rehab services we're providing. So as a company, you know, our average PDPM rate in, in, 24, in 2021, Q4, it was 16% higher than the state average and 14% higher than the national average. So when it comes to understanding the model and capturing it, I think our company has, has done a fantastic job with that. But in late 2021, we decided to improve upon that even better and kind of strengthen our outcomes and make sure we were managing quality, not only in the facility, but after the resident discharge home. So we kind of, we added a contractual relationship. I actually like to prefer, I I prefer to use the term partnership, but um, with a group, they're actually out of Chicago, comprehensive rehab consultants. So they have partnered with us since late 2021. And they provide physiatry care in our facilities, uh, nurse practitioners, they help us uh, with with managing these residents and these rehab residents complexities. But the great thing is they follow them after they go home. And we've seen just huge improvements in our uh, hospital readmission rates. But just 
most importantly is our overall customer service has improved because our residents are getting that on-site care daily. These these practitioners are in our buildings assisting with PDPM, assisting with the residents uh, daily. So when a, when a resident comes to you know, the skilled nursing facility for rehab, they if they see somebody in a white coat, you know, to them, it's a doctor. And so just seeing that person in that white coat every day um, has really helped improve with our customer service and, and ultimately our outcomes, quality outcomes uh, by, by utilizing this group. So as a whole, Sandstone, we've, we've done very well with the PDPM model. We've always been a company that accepts high acuity. Now we're getting reimbursed for it. And we've added that additional component by adding comprehensive rehab consultants to the mix to improve quality outcomes as well. So with all that being said, you know, a cut in Medicare, the proposed cuts are just, uh, they could be detrimental to the services uh, that that we are able to provide. So Again, we went to Capitol Hill and we're asking for that um, staggered approach to the parity adjustment. And and hopefully um, that'll happen. I think we're going to know real soon, a couple weeks probably. But uh, Medicare cuts uh, could be detrimental, again, to our sector, in addition to, to the other Medicaid um, cuts in some states as we start to see the uh, the pandemic kind of subside as far as the funding. So. Definitely. So is this partnership, is this something through an ISNP or is it something separate? It's totally separate. It's almost um, as if you, a group would contract a therapy group, for example, or maybe you do contract services with your pharmacy. So it's exactly the same thing. You have, you can, um, you can contract with this group and they truly you know, they're, they're providing the results that your eye snips want to see. That's, that's the, the real outcome, but it's not part of an eye snip. It's just an added service that you can add to your uh, overall comprehensive rehab plan for your, your Part A residents. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It was interesting because I know that the idea of nurse practitioners is one that uh, a lot of people are are looking into and trying to figure out, because like you said, when you see someone in a white coat in a nursing home, when that's not always the case, it can be a positive experience for a resident. And obviously, as you're saying, it can increase the care that you're able to provide as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, switching back again here to, to policy, uh, I know that the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services have indicated on more than one occasion that they're interested in exploring a change to how Medicaid dollars are spent on the federal level with more direct ties to staffing and care quality. I know that we talked about the state level a little bit here with Medicaid funding. I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that and how that might impact thinking about finances and operations overall. I do. I'm a huge proponent of quality. Absolutely. I have some thoughts about that, Jordan, as to how that would work. And I haven't, I haven't quite figured it out as a whole yet. And I guess for me, when you're talking, when that, when the administration, when they're uh, referring to, to quality, they're typically utilizing our MDS assessments to determine quality. 
not so much with the hospital readmission, but when you're looking at overall complexity in a nursing home or staffing more so, if the staffing is solely based off of the case mix, which derives from the MDS, I worry that facilities who are good at capturing the care they're providing will be penalized when it comes to staffing mandates or quality mandates. Maybe those facilities do a a good job of capturing um, the highest quality mixed care that they're providing throughout throughout the the look-back period. But then on the other side, they're going to be penalized because they're going to be required to have more staff. They're going to maybe be capturing some of that acuity that acuity that other buildings have as well, but maybe they're not capturing it. And therefore, those buildings might not have the staffing mandate. They may not have the numbers required for the staffing mandate. They may not uh, have the quality outcomes that some of these buildings who do a better job of capturing this data may experience in a and I'm not sure if I'm quite making sense. Jordan, you understand like the whole quality mix aspect of an MDS, right? Yeah. So what we're seeing is like, for example, the current CMS staffing stars, for example, um, we may have the same amount of staff that another building, we may have more staff than another building down the road has, but we do a really good job of capturing the acuity that maybe that building down the road doesn't do. And so they may have the same exact acuity or maybe even higher, but they're not held to the staffing standards that we are because we're the ones that are capturing that acuity in our case mix. And so for us, you know, we find ourselves challenged with managing the staffing stars just based on our sheer ability to capture uh, the acuity that we're providing. So I just want to make sure, I think it's a great idea to reimburse based upon quality. But I also think that there has to be some format that's measuring apples to apples. And and I'm just not so sure that this, that capturing through case mix and MDS is is truly capturing the, the true picture of what's happening in the buildings. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. And so, you know, looking ahead with Sandstone, what growth plans do you guys have, if any, and what do you think the next year or two is going to look like for Sandstone? Yeah, I think um, we're always open to growth, for sure. Um, we've never been a company that wants to grow just for the purpose of growing, um, it needs to be a good fit for our company. And so we have opportunities often to grow, but, but again, it just needs to be, it needs to be something that we fit, we feel like fits into, into our family, into our portfolio. So with that being said, we're in North Carolina right now. We're North Carolina based, but we're definitely uh, would love opportunities for growth outside of North Carolina and surrounding states, or even potentially some additional growth in North Carolina. So I think we're always open to growth and we're prepared for it and we're ready for it. It's just uh, waiting for that good opportunity to come along. That's all we have for this episode of Rethink. 
be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com for the latest insights and industry news and subscribe to Rethink to be notified when new episodes are released. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Jordan Ryland for Skilled Nursing News. Thanks for listening.